0: It becomes harder to appreciate your own stuff. So, And it shouldn't be this way. right? Ideally, we would appreciate when everybody else has good things, it would make us feel good and happy for them, and that wouldn't like make us not feel any better about the things that we have. So in an ideal world, we wouldn't have this problem with everybody else's stuff and our stuff. But the world is not ideal. right? The world that we live in is broken by sin. And we are broken by sin. And so all of us struggle with comparison. In fact, there's a phrase that I've heard repeated over and over in the secular world, and apparently it came from Theodore Roosevelt, which I didn't know until I looked this up. But the phrase is, comparison is the thief of joy. Have you heard that phrase? Comparison is the thief of joy. As soon as we start looking at everybody else's stuff, it becomes very hard to feel joy about our own stuff. So, we could spend a long time talking about comparison, and we haven't even touched social media. Like, we could talk about this for a very long time. How does comparison affect our mental health? How does comparison affect our emotional health? But today, in Psalm 73, we're going to talk about how comparison can affect our spiritual health. So, Psalm 73 was written by a man named Asaph. Who was Asaph? He's probably not one of the main Bible characters that you learned about in Sunday school. And we really don't know that much about Asaph. We know he lived at King David's time, so about 3,000 years ago. We know he was an ancient singer-songwriter. So when they dedicated the temple in the, in the years of Solomon, Asaph got to have a solo. He must have had a pretty good voice. Um, he also composed 12 of the Psalms that are in the Bible. Aside from that, we don't know much about Asaph's life. But From his psalms, we do get a look into his heart. And in Psalm 73, Asaph's heart is deeply troubled. And here's what he says. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. And this is what the wicked are like, says Asaph. Always free of care. They go on just amassing wealth. Meanwhile, all day long I have been afflicted. Every morning just brings new punishments. So you get Asaph's complaint? He's saying, quite simply, the people who are trying to follow God in this life and hold on to our faith, those people don't seem to get anything out of it. And meanwhile, the people who hate God and curse God and hurt and abuse other people, they seem to be dominating. They seem to be flourishing and having a grand old time in the world. So, Asaph is really upset about this, and it makes you wonder, like, what things do you think he's seeing in his own society that are troubling him so much? Is it corrupt government? Like judges and officials that are taking bribes and playing favorites, and no one is holding them accountable at all? Is it maybe corruption in his own city, in his own neighborhood, where he sees the rich oppressing the poor, the violent attacking the weak, And nobody seems to be held accountable for anything. Maybe he's even seeing the way that heathen nations are literally cursing God and seeming to get away with it. At the time of Asaph, the main enemy of the Israelites was the Philistines. Does that ring a bell? You remember like King David fighting against the Philistines? So once upon a time, there was one Philistine warrior, great big giant named Goliath. And you remember what Goliath did in battle? He came up to the battle line for 40 days in a row, and every morning he would curse the God of Israel with every filthy curse word that he knew. And he would just openly challenge God or anyone to stop him. And for 40 days, nothing happened. He didn't get struck by a lightning bolt, the earth didn't open up and swallow him, just nothing. Like silence from heaven as Goliath is cursing God in front of both armies. We know what eventually happened to Goliath. But in the moment, it definitely seems like he's getting away with it. In fact, everyone seems to be getting away with stuff, Asaph says. And then, meanwhile, over here are the followers of God, getting oppressed and afflicted and hated by everybody else and losing their property and losing their health and getting mocked for trusting in this God who just doesn't seem to be doing anything for them. Times like this, it makes you wonder if God is doing anything at all. times like this, it makes you wonder if God is even up there at all. And so that's kind of where Asaph has gotten to. As he's comparing things and looking at different people's lives, it started to hurt his faith. Because what is faith? Faith is trusting in something that you don't see. right? And what's happened with Asaph is the things he can see are so troubling to him that he's starting to doubt everything else that his faith is founded in. And so he says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. In other words, what's the point? What is the point of following God if all you get for it is a life full of misery and trouble and getting trampled on by wicked people who literally just laugh at you for your faith? What's the point? So that's Asaph's question. And let's not be super hard on ASF just yet, because this is a pretty good question. I wonder if you've ever asked this question. I know that I have absolutely asked this question. I'll give you a couple personal examples. Here's one. I know this Christian family that we're very close to. We love them very much. and. They have just been hammered by trouble after trouble after trouble after trouble, and you think can this family can't possibly have one more bad thing happen to them, and it just keeps on coming, and it keeps on coming. And it makes me ask, why would God allow things like this to happen to people that he says he loves? Here's another personal example. Um, we have another good friend who's been working on a dream project at work for years. And she's really good at what she does. She's really passionate about this project. She's set it all up. But what has happened now is behind the scenes on her project, there are some men who have been lying and manipulating things. And what it's come out that they're doing is that they're basically stealing her work and taking all the credit and pushing her to the curb and stealing her project. And she can't do anything about it. Like it's too late. It's too far into it. And it's so unfair, because it was her passion, it was her idea, and it's been like stolen from her. And so this bothers me, and I can't help but ask, why are you know, slimy, manipulative people able to just get away with this? That's not fair. This doesn't seem right. So I can list lots of other examples, and I'm sure that you could too, as we're kind of comparing different things in the world. There are a lot of things that are unfair and just don't add up. And sometimes the comparison has nothing to do with my life. Like, my life is fine. I thank God for my life. But I look at other people's lives, and how can this possibly be? How can God let this go down the way it's going down? What is the point of following God if all you get for it is a life full of misery and trouble and getting trampled on by wicked people who just want to laugh at your faith? What's the point? So Asaph is super troubled by this for the whole first half of the psalm. like He's in a dark place, and then in the middle of the psalm, the exact middle verse, he turns a corner. And it's interesting. You know what makes him turn the corner? It is when he goes to church. Here's what he says. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. So it wasn't until Asaph went to God's house and worshiped, and he heard teaching from God's word, and he sang the songs of faith, he began to understand. No, he didn't suddenly have a perfect understanding of why God does all the things he does, why God allows bad things to happen to good people, and vice versa. He didn't have a perfect understanding of all of God's ways, but what Asaph gained at church was a new perspective, a broader perspective, focused not just on this life, but on eternity. And from that broad perspective, now he was able to find comfort and peace. So, this is what happens when you go to church. You get clarity. You get perspective. And this is what God does for us. We come to God's house. We worship him. We hear teaching from his word. We sing the songs of faith. And God holds us by our right hand. God guides us with his counsel. He broadens our perspective, and he brings us comfort and peace that we cannot get from looking at the way the world looks from our eyes down here. So, what is the big perspective shift that we get? What do we learn when we come to God's house that makes everything so different? I think you could distill it down to three chief points. The first point is this. A life of evil isn't worth it in the end. A life of evil is not worth it in the end. So the whole first half of the psalm, Asaph's been complaining about how the wicked prosper with seemingly no consequences at all, but then he shifts gears. He says, when I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny, which is this. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. So, The key word here is final. Because in the short term, there doesn't appear to be any justice for some of the things that happen in this world. So many things don't seem fair. But in the final analysis, in the long term, every wrong will be righted. And to make that point, Asaph uses a very clear picture. He says, God, surely you place them on slippery ground. So maybe you can envision this type of a picture. You envision a hiker who goes off of the safe trail where they're supposed to be hiking and they start hiking over by the edge of this big waterfall and walking on the rocks where you're not supposed to go and for a little while it looks like a totally beautiful, fun place to walk, until inevitably this hiker puts their their full weight on a mossy, slippery rock and what happens? Their feet shoot out from under them, they tumble into the water, they're over the waterfall, dangerous situation. But Asaph says this is what's going to happen with the wicked. With evil, corrupt people who hate God and abuse others and seem to be getting away with it, there's no consequences for what they do, but it's not going to last for long. That kind of a life is like a moss-covered boulder that looks like a good place to walk for a little bit, but once your whole weight is on it, once a person gets to the end of their life and the whole life has been about hating God and abusing others, all of a sudden their foot is going to slip and they will be swept away for eternity. So this is a deeply unpleasant thought, but there is a comfort here, and the comfort comes when you think about some of the greatest injustices that you see on this earth. And so many people that are abused and dominated by certain manipulative people, like what a mafia boss or an evil dictator or a human trafficker or someone who's harming children, There are people who are getting away with these things in the world. It is deeply troubling. But that doesn't mean they're going to get away with it forever. God cares about justice as much as we do. And in the end, God is going to ensure that justice gets done. So point number one is a life of evil is not worth it in the end. Point number two, life with God is worth it in the end. Asaph says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will take me into glory. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Again, the key phrases are the time ones, like afterward and forever. In this life, from this perspective, it might look like, as a Christian, you're not gaining much from your faith in God. But afterward, all of God's promises will be fulfilled. He will rescue us from pain and suffering. He will take us into glory. And we will get that eternal treasure that lasts forever. Now, how do we know? Right? Because we can't see it. We're believing in something we don't see. How can we know what God is going to do for us in eternity? How do we know he's telling the truth? Well, the answer is because we know what God has done for us in time. We know what God has done for us when he came into our world. There's a phrase in these verses. It comes from verse 25, and I want to do an exercise this morning. I want you to imagine this phrase. Imagine that God is the one speaking this phrase, and he's saying it to you. The phrase is this. Earth has nothing I desire besides you. Make God the speaker and put your name in that Right? Tiv, Deb, Peter. Earth has nothing I desire besides you. That's what God says. That's how God feels about you. And if you doubt that, just think about Jesus' life on earth and what he did. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? The devil gave him different temptations. And one of them, the devil sat him down and showed him all the kingdoms of the world with all their treasure and all their splendor. And the devil said to Jesus, I will give you all of this if you will just bow down and worship me. But Jesus said no. And that's because he's evaluating the value of all that treasure against you. And Jesus concludes he would rather have you in heaven with him than have all the treasure in the world. Isn't that amazing? So Jesus says no to that temptation so he can have you in heaven with him. Same thing happened when Jesus was dying on the cross. Remember how people walked by and they mocked Jesus and they said, if you're really the son of God, why don't you come down from that cross and save yourself? And Jesus could have done it. He could have come down from the cross and saved himself. But he's evaluating the value. And Jesus decided he would rather have you in heaven with him than put an end even to the terrible suffering that was happening to him on the cross. So over and over again, and really every day, There were times when Jesus could have opted out of his perfect life in your place, of his perfect death on the cross for your sins, but he didn't. Because he values you more than anything else in the world. Earth has nothing he desires besides you. It is amazing when you think of the God of the universe thinking of you like that, valuing you so highly that he's going to make you outlive the earth. Right? One day, as we said, everything in this world is going to be destroyed. But you're not going to be destroyed. Because you are a child of God. You are God's treasure. And he's going to have you with him in heaven forever. Knowing that God looks at you like that, it makes you look at your whole world differently. And it makes you value things in your world differently. And that's the last point of this song. Life with God gives us a whole new value system. So now we can read these same verses, and instead of having God say these words, now we can imagine ourselves saying these words, along with Asaph, the psalm writer, saying now to God, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, there is nothing I desire, God, besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So the whole point this psalm is making for us, right, is it's clarifying which things are most valuable. And the things that are actually most valuable are the things that last the longest. Money and popularity and success and health, all of these things are blessings from God. All of these things are fun when you've got them, but none of these things last forever. God's love, God's forgiveness, God's promises These are things that you may not see doing something right now on your day-to-day basis when your health is bad, and when your finances are bad, and when other things seem so bad. But God's love and forgiveness and promises are eternal. And so this is like a worldview statement that Asaph puts at the end of this psalm. It's like a theme for our life. My flesh and my heart may fail. Eventually they will. My earthly stuff may go away. Eventually it will. But God is the strength of my heart, and he is my portion forever. From the broad, eternal perspective, God is really the only thing that we need. So that's the perspective shift that we get when we come into God's house. Now what happens when we go out of God's house? We go back to our homes, our jobs, our lives for the rest of the week. Well, what happens is that we now find ourselves making a different kind of comparison. Because comparison is inevitable. We would love to say, I, don't, I never see what anyone else is doing. I'm only focused on my life. I'm not going to compare. But it's impossible. It's impossible for us to not look at our life and other people's lives and notice that things are different. Not everybody's life is the same. We have different stuff. We have different blessings. We have different challenges. And yet God's word shows us where true value lies. God's word shows us that by being connected to his family through faith in Jesus, we are connected to the greatest treasure that a person could ever have in this world, even if our bank account is at zero. And God's word also shows us that if a person is living separated from God, they are in a dangerous spot of eternal potential poverty, even if their bank account is at billions and billions of dollars. So, Psalm 73 does not put an end comparison. Instead, it helps us to compare things correctly. Instead of looking at people around us and asking, why don't I get what they have? Instead, we realize our spiritual riches and we start to ask the question, how can they get what I have? And Asaph knows the answer to that question. How can other people get the riches that we have been given? And the answer is the very last line of the psalm, I will tell of all your deeds. In a world that is only focused on the short term, I will tell of all your deeds, God, so that people may know the eternal treasure that is available for them. That's what Asaph says. May God help us to do the same thing, to realize the value of the eternal riches we have in Jesus, and then to seize every opportunity we get to share those riches with others on earth. May God grant that to us, for Jesus' sake. Amen.